Faith Rockburn was on the show with me last week to talk about her lifetime of mental illness, which started with anorexia when she was a young girl and she got down to 80 pounds to her severe and treatment-resistant depression. Faith didn't realize that depression was creeping into her life until it began to take over when both her parents died as well as a close friend and over a short period of time. And she started avoiding having people over to her house or even going out with friends. And eventually she found it hard to get out of bed and she lost her supervisory job at one of the large banks. At that time, she was then diagnosed with severe depression. And that started four years of trying to find the right medication and even ECT didn't help. And that's because she had what's known as treatment resistant depression. But she eventually did find some medication that worked. And when she became stable, her doctor recommended group therapy, which she really didn't want to do. But when she did finally go to group therapy, she said it changed her life. Faith is back this week to talk about her work as a peer support worker and what it means to her and to the people she works with. Hi, Faith. How are you today? I'm good, Janice. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for coming on and talking about your story. I know for a lot of people, it's very, very difficult to talk about uh, their mental illness or their experiences with substance use because of the shame that uh, that many people still feel. And well, I think it's getting better, but many people still feel that. Now, one of the yeah. other things that was also really um, became large in your recovery and you now work as a peer support worker was, but you got into some uh, level of group therapy. So you met other people. I did. That was my, actually my big breakthrough was that, again, I was begging my doctor, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, well, you know what? You've never tried. You've never tried group therapy. And I went, ugh. Uh, I don't want to listen to other people. I've got enough problems of my own. <laughs> In case you haven't noticed, I'm kind of down. Um, so I don't really want to listen to it. But anyway, I thought you've got to do this. You have you cannot say anything until you try it. And I made my way. I'll never forget the day I crossed my front door because I rarely left the home at that point. Rarely. And I crossed the front door and it was kind of like crossing the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and I made my way to Cam H and I was with this teeny little group. There were four of us. And that was my breakthrough because I realized as soon as I sat down, uh, I thought, these are my people. These people understand me and I don't have to pretend in front of them. I don't have to be anybody different than who I am. And they don't just see me as my illness. And I think group therapy, something that I poo-pooed for so long, that was what I absolutely needed was that community and the ability to share my feelings without judgment um, and to empathize with other people who had way worse problems than I did. And that's the other thing about group therapy is the relativity. You know, one guy was getting divorced and, you know, he didn't know if he would have any money or where he was going to live. And it helps you go, wow, I'm not, you know, the worst off in the world. I think I am, but I'm not. So it got me into a very different pattern uh, of thinking. But I think mental illness, especially untreated as mine had to be, makes you selfish because you want you, you have to protect yourself first. 
before you're going to do anything else. And so, cause you're so vulnerable. And so that was the biggest breakthrough for me and led me to, into becoming better enough to become a peer support, which is a huge part of my therapy is helping other people who are, I've been there. And especially when they're acute in the hospital, um, it's, you know, I wish I'd had somebody like me when I was yeah. in the hospital. Tell me about the peer support work that you're doing now, because it it has continued as a major part of your life when you say it's the the group therapy to a whole different level because you recognized how much it helped you and you mm -hmm. started to be um, a peer support worker. So can you talk about the work that you that you do as a as peer support? Sure. Um, I'd love to. I love it so much. I'm I'm a peer support, part-time peer support specialist at St. Michael's Hospital in the mental health inpatient uh, unit. So it's quite intense. There are 33 patients in various um, conditions, some more acute than others. And my role is really to support patients um, because I don't want anything from them. A doctor or nurse needs or wants something from you. I'm just there for you to chat about whatever you'd like to chat about, kind of normalize the situation because other people don't want to hear about your cat or how much you love your boyfriend or how whatever it happens to be. And um, I find that patients really respond so positively because these are, that's such a frightening experience. It's a terrifying experience um, for as nice as you can try and make it. And St. Mike's is a wonderful, wonderful place, um, but it's still terrifying because many of these patients have been brought in by police, uh, brought in by their family. Uh, they cannot leave. Uh, they don't understand why they can't leave. So it is wonderful for them, I think, to have somebody that can say, I've been there, I know how this feels and I'm here to help you. And, and there are different ways. I do groups where we teach different skills and we have fun and we socialize. I try and bring patients together so that they help each other. Um, but really what I think for peer support for me was that when I was a child, I, I was very empathetic and I've always been an empathetic person. And mental illness kind of buried that part of me. And then when I started just as a volunteer, as a peer support, I realized this is actually who I am. This is the per the little girl um, that was a candy striper, the little girl that, you know, went to Regent's Park and helped her mom with her charities and stuff. Um, that little, per that part of me had been buried for so long because of depression and anxiety. And this has brought it out and made me truly realize what I was put on this earth to do. Did it give you a sense of, of self-worth that you had lost completely Absolutely. during your time of depression? Absolutely. There's nothing better, I think, than having a patient thank you and tell you how much you've helped them. I cannot think of a better thing. Most times I come home and I'm just glowing because I know how I know what I 
uh, what I'm doing. I know how to help people. I'm learning all the time as we always are. Um, but I am just an empathetic person and, and a compassionate person. And I never would have realized that um, and, and without this experience and without my recovery journey. Yeah. It's, and well, and it, it's interesting because when I was, when I was said earlier, my family was so supportive and they tried, but in the end, they couldn't understand what was going on because I went awesome. from this outgoing, I was athletic, I was good at my job. Uh, and then I started to self-medicate with alcohol and then the wheels came off and, and, and they didn't understand because it wasn't something in my family, there'd always been in hindsight, um, levels of depression with my mom and, yeah. and her sisters and so on, but nothing as dramatic as, uh, as my situation. And I didn't have peer support wasn't something that, you know, was there. I was the same with you about group therapy. I'm not going, that's not going to help me. Um, because by this point, the only group therapy was the only thing left. And I'm, well, if yeah. medication and ECT, that doesn't help talking to people who are in the same position as me, that's not going to help. And peer support wasn't there. And it, it's kind of sounds like it's a little bit of a friendship that you, that you, uh, have with people. And again, with my friends, they wanted to help. But my problem was, uh, and, and I think that what you're doing in the hospital will help people leaving the hospital deal with this. My friends, I would start to say, okay, I'll go out with you. Well, then a week later, they thought I should be able to go out with them you're because right, I had yeah. done it once. So then mm -hmm. there was a, an expectation there that scared me. So I withdrew again. Is this something that being able to be with people and help them understand um, what they're what they're experiencing from an illness perspective, and that they're not alone, help it prepares them to leave the hospital, not just to be in that hospital situation. It depends on very much on the patient. I mean, some patients are are, are open to peer support. Others are not. Some patients go well. If you're not a doctor, a nurse, or some other kind of clinician as such, um, what do I need to talk to you for? However, those I would say are the minority. And I think one of the things that I really, I mean, people are with us, what, when they're there, I, what I try and get them to understand is that they help each other um, more than any anybody else can help them. Um, and so I try and get them into the, the feeling of peer support and the value that it brings because they see they can talk to each other. There's no shame attached to it and they exchange stories. So what I do is um, while they're there and particularly just before they're discharged, I say, uh, what kind of support are you going to be getting when you leave? And they go, Oh, my parents are really supportive or, Oh, my sister, I always talk to my cousin or something. And I say, well, that's great but you need people that understand where you're at and, and that you have mental illness and you need to, and people that don't have it like your mom or like your cousin um, aren't able to understand it. So while that support that they give is so important, um, I urge you strongly to get into a support group and I give them sites that have free support group. And I say to them, you know what? The patients that do this, they don't come back because one patient actually I recommended this she was a young girl 
um, very wonderful person. And I remember I recommended this and she went, oh yeah, sure. And then a few, about a month later, she was back and she said to me, you know what, Faith, I realized that that was the piece that was missing. And now she's never been back. So this works. Um, we need to have, be able to talk to each other um, people. I mean, this is how Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the biggest, most successful peer support group in the history. Um, that's how it started by two uh, uh, men with alcoholism sitting down and going, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. And look at how the strength that that has built for people. And these two men had spent a lot of time and money going all over the world looking for help. And it was when they were able to talk to each other. And that's to me, is it just says it right there that that's the power of peer support. And, and as well, um, and, not, and I understand from your story, because this is, seems pretty clear, and I'm not knocking psychiatrists in any way, because at the time that I was going through treatment, this was what psychiatry believed, was mm -hmm. that it was medication where mm -hmm. you stayed where you were. Um, and and uh, I, at the time um, that I started to get better, I was in a well space and I met a, a doctor who was doing cognitive behavioral therapy for people with bipolar disorder. Now, the belief at that time was there was no control over mania, these mood swings, you couldn't do anything about it. And as lovely as my psychiatrist was, he said to me, it's not if you get sick. It's sorry. If, yeah, it's not if you get sick again. It's when you get sick again. Mm -hmm. It's an epidural. Mm -hmm. My my uh, CBT psychiatrist said, I think a combination of talking about talking through what these things are in your life that are triggers. Let's identify them, and you're going to be on your medication. The between the two of them, you you know it may be not when you get sick again, but if you get sick again. So they flipped it and it became positive. And that became my version of being able to talk about what was happening with me. But but I didn't have the, the peer support at that time. And I think now how important that could have been for me in being able to share. And again, when I came out of hospital, like I said, my friends were so supportive, but they had expectations I couldn't live up to. And it's not that they were mean yeah. to me. They just, they thought that they were being so helpful. Well, I see. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they, how can you understand? I mean, how can you understand what's helpful? How, cause you, you don't understand, you know, you, this, the will is there. It's the, it's the impossibility of putting yourself in your shoes or in my shoes. So then people just go, well, you know, I called her and she didn't call me back or whatever it happens to be. But I also think that um, people, a lot of patients that I see come in, I believe, although there's, this is just my personal belief, that a, much of some of the mental illness has been exacerbated by trying, by the secrecy. Culturally, yes. there are many cultures where no one outside the immediate family um, knows anything. And they're so happy that their um, child or who a relative 
is in a general hospital because then they can pretend that it's not a mental illness. If you're in CAMH, for example, while well, the cat's out of the bat. So right. I, you know what I mean? But yeah, absolutely. Actually, a lot of, uh, I've heard stories about patients telling ambulance drivers not to take them to CAMH, um, to take them to a general hospital because of the shame that's attached. And my sense is when um, talking to patients about their particular situations, um, when they're able to, many of them do, do, are not involved in peer groups. And I think the stress of dealing with the secrecy within the family or within the friend group um, exacerbates and, and makes everything so much worse. And I actually had a patient who didn't want any of their friends to know what how bad it really was. And as a result of keeping that secret, um, they were back in and back in and back in until they resolved that it would no longer be a secret. And I had, I was so happy to be able to help this patient because I said, you know what? I tried to keep it a secret for a long time too. I never told my parents before they died. Um, many people didn't know unless they figured it out for themselves. And I, as soon as I stopped keeping it a secret, is when I started to get better. Because after I um, had this breakthrough in group therapy, that's when I started to become a lived experience advocate, getting up and telling my story to anybody who would listen. And I found that so therapeutic that I could talk about what I'd been going through. And keeping, I always say secrets cause sickness and secrets keep people sick. And it's still a huge issue that we are dealing with. What I found when I started to talk about it, and I'm like you, I was, I was very open about it um, uh, once I sort of got into a more well place, for whatever yeah. reason. I don't know why. Well, I don't know why I didn't feel as much stigma attached at that particular point as other people. Maybe it was because I felt everybody knew by then that you know that I was literally crazy. I feel I can use that word because yeah, that's, totally. you know, um, <laughs> but um, what I found was that every person I spoke to had someone in their life that they were close to who was living with some sort of mental illness and living in that state of desperation because yeah. the stigma was so strong and knowing that there is somebody else out there, and even if it is the family member, there's this huge sigh of relief. I'm not alone. Maybe there's yeah. something I can do. Yeah, I get, I used to, I have done a lot of teaching, uh, um, speaking to nursing and social work students at um, Humber and Guelph Humber University. And afterwards, I would receive tons of emails from students saying, thank you so much. I have depression and I can't talk about it. Um, but maybe I will after hearing you, my brother, my, my, you know, my friend, my, and there are, so it's so prevalent and yet it's a secret. It's that's just to me ridiculous. This isn't a rare thing. And this has, this is a chemical imbalance 
similar to diabetes, similar to many other illnesses that happens to occur in the brain. Why is the brain, which we're kind of, is everything, but yet it's the least developed um, discipline, I think. You know, psychiatry didn't come along till long after medical science started. And then we had Freud and Jung, and that was sort of, that was it. I mean, we we kind of, our shame about it and our fear of it has lag, made us lag behind in research, lag behind in psychiatry, lag behind in everything because of our shame. Well, uh, you know, uh, health doesn't stop at your shoulders. <laughs> right. But, that, but it's, but it, but it's treated that yep. way. It's sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and there's no um, understanding of the devastating, devastating physical and mental effects of depression. Um, no understanding it's, you're just, you know, the things we talked about. So but how can it be, this isn't a small sector of the population. This is a huge sector that have it. And so many more that haven't been diagnosed. And goodness knows what happened. Untreated mental illness to me ends only, usually ends in only one of three ways, hospital, jail, death. Yep. So the high price that we are willing to pay for this taboo, this ridiculous, unfounded taboo, um, is, is a shame is, is, is it's almost sort of criminal that we, the brain, if you don't, if your brain isn't functioning, you're considered to be brain dead and at the end of your life, yet we don't cradle this brain lovingly and look into how we help it. Um, we just kind of go, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, one of the best, one of the best things I ever heard was you should just pull up your socks. And I looked down and I wasn't wearing socks. Um, and I look at it and I, and I do, we've, we've been throwing around this one in five Canadians are experiencing or will experience mental uh, illness in their lifetime. And I think it's one in four uh, because now we're learning about the, the numbers are increasing because more people are coming forward. So if you say 25% of the population lives with the mental illness, at least one person in that person's life is affected. So maybe 50% oh, yeah. of the population are affected in some way by a mental illness. Well, it doesn't stop there because you know it's not just one person. And on and yeah, on and on it and, goes and, till we are at 100% of the population is either ill or affected in some way by mental illness. And yet we hmm. still don't talk about it. Exactly. It, 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 exactly. And I, I, when I, one of the things I say in my speech is, you know, mental illness is our society's last taboo and it's literally killing us. Most expensive taboo you could ever have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for all of the work you do and for being so open um, about your situation, because uh, I, I think it's the only way we're ever going to get anywhere in terms of improved medical help um, and improved understanding from a societal perspective. So, uh, and, and your work with peer support, I, I really appreciate that. And I think that anybody out there who is living, um, especially sort of the quiet life of desperation, 
that many people are living. Um, we'll, we'll hopefully hear you uh, in the many, many places that you are speaking and being so open and that it is going to give them that sense of, I am not alone in this. There's something Absolutely. I can do. Absolutely. You are not alone. And I really appreciate this opportunity and this venue um, to be able to share that message.